Chapter 22 of The Pretty Lady by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 22. Getting on with the war. The floors of the Reynolds galleries were covered with some hundreds of very well-dressed and very expensively dressed women, and some scores of men. The walls were covered with a lone collection of oil paintings, watercolour drawings, and etchings, English and French, but chiefly English. A very large proportion of the pictures were portraits of women, done by a select group of very expensive painters in the highest vogue. These portraits were the main attraction of the elegant crowd, which included many of the sitters. As for the latter, they failed to hide under an unconvincing mask of indifference their curiosity as to their own effectiveness in a frame. The portraits, for the most part, had every quality save that of sincerity. They were transcendently adroit, and they reeked of talent. They were luxurious, refined, sensual, titillating, exquisite, tender, compact, of striking poses and subtle new tones. And, while the heads were well finished and instantly recognisable as likenesses, the impressionism of the hands and of the provocative draperies showed that the artists had fully realised the necessity of being modern. The mischief and the damnation were that the sitters liked them because they produced in the sitters the illusion that the sitters were really what the sitters wanted to be and what indeed nearly every woman in the galleries wanted to be, and the ideal of the sitters was a low ideal. The portraits flattered, but only a few guessed that they flattered ignobly. Scarcely any even of the artists guessed that. The portraits were a success, the exhibition was a success, and all the people of the private view justly felt that they were part of and contributing to the success. And though seemingly the aim of everybody was to prove to everybody else that no war, not the greatest war, could disturb the appearances of social life in London, yet many were properly serious and proud in their seriousness. It was the autumn of 1915. British troops were triumphantly on the road to Kut, and British forces were approaching decisive victory in Gallipoli. The Russians had turned on their pursuers, the French had initiated in Champagne an offensive so dramatic that it was regarded as the beginning of the end, and the British on their left, in the taking of Luz and Hill 70, had achieved what might have been regarded as the greatest success on the Western Front, had it not been for the rumour, current among the informed personages of the Reynolds galleries, that recent bulletins had been reticent to the point of deception, and that in fact Hill 70 had ceased to be ours a week earlier. Further, Zeppelins had raided London and killed and wounded numerous Londoners, and all present in the Reynolds galleries were aware, from positive statements in the newspapers, that whereas German morale was crumbling, all Londoners, including themselves, had behaved with the most marvellous stoic calm in the ordeal of the Zeppelins. The Assembly had a further and particular reason for serious pride. It was getting on with the war, and in a most novel way. Private views are customarily views gratis. But the entrance to this private view cost a guinea, and there was absolutely no free list. The guineas were going to the support of the Lechford hospitals in France. The happy idea was G.J.'s own, and Lady Queenie Paul and her mother had taken the right influential measures to ensure its grandiose execution. A queen had visited the private view for half an hour. Thus, all the very well-dressed and very expensively dressed women and all the men who admired and desired them as they moved in voluptuous perfection, amid dazzling pictures with the soft illumination of screen skylights above and the reflections in polished parquet below, all of both sexes were comfortably conscious of virtue 
in the undoubted fact that they were helping to support two renowned hospitals where at that very moment dissevered legs and arms were being thrown into buckets. In a little room at the end of the galleries was a small but choice collection of the etchings of Felicius Rops, a collection for connoisseurs, as the critics were to point out in the newspapers the next morning. For Rops, though he had an undeniable partiality for subjects in which ugly and prurient women displayed themselves in nothing but the inessentials of costume, was a classic before whom it was necessary to bow the head in homage. G.J. was in this room in company with a young and handsome staff officer, Lieutenant Mulder, home on convalescent leave from Suvla Bay. Mr. Mulder had left Oxford in order to join the army. He had behaved admirably, and well earned the red shoulder ornaments which pure accident had given him. He was a youth of artistic and literary tastes, with genuine ambitions quite other than military, and, after a year of horrible existence in which he had hungered for the arts more than for anything, he was solacing and renewing himself in the contemplation of all the masterpieces that London could show. He greatly esteemed G.J.'s connoisseurship, and G.J. had taken him in hand. At the close of a conscientious and highly critical round of the galleries, they had at length reached the Rops room, and they were discussing every aspect of Rops except his lubricity, when Lady Queenie Paul approached them from behind. Mulder was the first to notice her, and turn. He blushed. Well, Queen, said G.J., who had already had several conversations with her in the galleries that day and on the previous days of preparation. She replied, Well, I hope you're satisfied with the results of your beautiful idea. The young woman, slim and pale, had long since gone out of mourning. She was most brilliantly attired, and no detail lacked to the perfection of her modish outfit. Indeed, just as she was, she would have made a marvellous mannequin, except for the fact that mannequins are not usually allowed to perfume themselves in business hours. Her thin, rather high voice, which somehow matched her complexion and carriage, had its customary tone of amiable insolence, and her tired, drooping eyes their equivocal glance, as she faced the bearded and grave middle-aged bachelor and the handsome and muscular boy. Even the boy was older than Queen, yet she seemed to condescend to them as if she were an immortal from everlasting to everlasting, and could teach both of them all sorts of useful things about life. Nobody could have guessed from that serene demeanour that her self-satisfaction was marred by any untoward detail whatever. Yet it was. All her frocks were designed to conceal a serious defect which seriously disturbed her. She was low-breasted. G.J. said bluntly, May I present Mr. Mulder, Lady Queenie Paul? And he said to himself, secretly annoyed, Dash the infernal chit! That's what she's come for. Now she's got it. She gave the slightest dubious nod to Mulder, who, having faced fighting Turks with an equanimity equal to Queenie's own, was yet considerably flurried by the presence and the gaze of this legendary girl. Queenie, enjoying his agitation but affecting to ignore him, began to talk quickly in the vein of exclusive gossip. She mentioned in a few seconds the topics of the imminent entry of Bulgaria into the war, the maturing Salonica expedition, the confidential terrible utterances of K on recruiting, and, of course, the misfortune, due to causes which Queenie had at her finger-ends, round about loose. Then, in regard to the last, she suddenly added, quite unjustifiably implying that the two phenomena were connected, You know, Mother's hospitals are frightfully full just now. But, of course, you do know. That's why I'm so especially glad today's such a success. Thus, in a moment, 
and with no more than ten phrases, she had conveyed the suggestion that while mere soldiers, ageing men about town, and the ingenuous mass of the public might and did foolishly imagine the war to be a simple affair, she herself, by reason of her intelligence and her private sources of knowledge, had a full, unique apprehension of its extremely complex and various formidableness. G.J. resented the familiar attitude, and he resented Queenie's very appearance and the appearance of the entire opulent scene. In his head at that precise instant was not only the statistics of mortality and major operations at the Lechford hospitals, but also the astounding, desolating tales of the handsome boy about folly, ignorance, stupidity and martyrdoms at Suvla. He said, with the peculiar polite restraint that in him masked emotion and acrimony, Yes, I'm glad it's a success, but the machinerative is perhaps just slightly out of proportion to the results. If people had given to the hospitals what they have spent on clothes to come here, and what they've paid painters so that they could see themselves on the walls, we should have made twenty times as much as we have made, a hundred times as much. My good God, Queen, the whole afternoon's takings wouldn't buy what you're wearing now, to say nothing of the five hundred other women here. His eye rested on the badge of her half-brother's regiment, which he'd had reproduced in diamonds. At this juncture, he heard himself addressed in a hearty, heavy voice as, G.J., old soul. An officer, with a solitary crowd on his sleeve, bald, stoutish, but probably not more than forty-five, touched him, much gentler than he spoke, on the shoulder. Grave, my son, you're back. Well, it's starting to see you at a picture show, anyhow. The Major, saluting Lady Queenie as a distance acquaintance, retorted, Morally, you owe me a guinea, my dear G.J. I called at the flat, and the young woman there told me you'd surely be here. While they were talking, G.J. could hear Queenie Paul and Mulder. Where are you back from? Suvla, Lady Queenie. You must be oozing with interest and actuality. Tell G.J. to bring you to tea one day, quite, quite soon, will you? I'll tell him. And Mulder murmured something fatuously conventional. G.J. showed decorously that he had caught his own name. Whereupon Lady Queenie, instead of naming a day for tea, addressed him almost bitterly. G.J., what's come over you? What in the name of Pan do you suppose all your males are fighting each other for? She paused effectively. Good God, if I began to dress like a housemaid, the Germans would be in London in a month. Our job as women is quite delicate enough without you making it worse by any damned sentimental superficiality. I want you to bring Mr. Mulder to tea tomorrow and if you can't come, he must come alone. With a last strange look at Mulder, she retired into the glitter of the crowded larger room. she been driving any fresh men to suicide lately? Major Crave demanded acidly under his breath. G.J. raised his eyebrows. Then, that's not you, Frankie, said the Major, with a start of recollection towards a staff lieutenant. Yes, sir, said Mulder. They shook hands. At the previous Christmas they'd lain out together on the cliffs of the east coast in wild weather, waiting to repel a phantom army of thirty thousand Germans. It was a red hat put me off, the Major explained. Not my fault, sir, Mulder smiled. Devilish glad to see you, my boy. G.J. murmured to Mulder. You don't want to go and have tea with her, do you? And Mulder answered with the somewhat fatuous, self-conscious grin that no amount of intelligence can keep out of the face of a good-looking fellow who knows that he's made an impression. Well, I, I don't know. G.J. raised his eyebrows again, but with indulgence, 
and winked at Crave. The Major shut his lips tight, then stood with his mouth open for a second or two, in the attitude of a man suddenly receiving the onset of a great and original idea. "'She's right, hang it all!' he exclaimed. "'She's right, of course she is! What's all this?' He waved an arm at the whole scene. "'What's all this but sex? Look at them! Look at their portraits! You aren't going to tell me! What's the good of pretending? Hang it all! When my own aunt comes down to breakfast in a low-cut blouse that would have given her fits even in the evening ten years ago! Jolly fine, too! I'm all for it! More of it the merrier! That's what I say! And don't any of you highbrows go trying to alter it! If you do, I retire, and you can defend your own bally front. Brave, said G.J. affectionately. Until you and Queen came along, Mulder and I really thought we were at a picture exhibition, and we still think so, don't we, Mulder? The lieutenant nodded. Now, as you are here, just let me show you one or two things. Oh, breathed the Major, have pity. Not any canvas woman that I want, by Jove. He caught sight of an invention of Felician Rops, a pig on the end of a string, needing, or being driven by, a woman who wore nothing but stockings, boots, and a hat. What do you call that? My dear fellow, that's one of the most famous etchings in the world. Is it? the Major asked. Well, I'm not surprised. There's more in this business than I imagined. He set himself to examine all the exhibits by Rops, and when he had finished, he turned to G.J. Listen here, G.J., we're going to make a night of it. I've decided on that. Sorry, dear heart, said G.J., I'm engaged with Mulder tonight. We shall have some private chamber music at my rooms, just for ourselves. You ought to come, much better for your health. What time will the din be over? About eleven. Now I say again, listen here, let's talk business. I'll come to your chamber music. I've been before and survived, and I'll come again. But of afterwards you'll come with me to the guinea fowl. But my dear chap, I can't throw Mulder out into Vigo Street at eleven o'clock, T.J. protested startled by the blunt mention of the notorious nightclub in the young man's presence. "'Naturally you can't. You'll come along with us. Frankie and I have nearly fallen into the North Sea or germination together, haven't we, Frankie? It'll be my show, and I'll turn up with the stuff, one, two, or three pretty ladies, according as your worship wishes.' G.J. was now more than startled. He was shocked. He felt his cheeks reddening. It was the presence of Mulder that confused him. Never had he talked to Mulder on any subjects but the arts, and if they had once or twice lighted on the topic of women, it was only in connection with the arts. He was really interested in and admired Mulder's unusual aesthetic intelligence, and he had done what he could to foster it, and he immensely appreciated Mulder's youthful esteem for himself. Moreover, he was easily old enough to be Mulder's father. It seemed to him that though two generations might properly mingle in anything else, they ought not to mingle in license. Crave's crudity was extraordinary. See here, Crave went on, serious and determined, you know the sort of thing I've come from. I got four days unexpected. I had to run down to my uncle's. The old things would have died if I hadn't. Tomorrow I go back. This is my last night. I haven't had a scratch up to now, but my turn's coming, you bet. Next week I may be in heaven or hell as anywhere or blind for life, or without my legs, or any damn thing you please. But I'm going to have tonight, and you're going to join in. G.J. saw the look of simple, half-worshipful appeal that sometimes came into Crave's rather ingenuous face. He well knew that look, and it always touched him. He remembered certain descriptive letters which he had received from Crave at the front. They corresponded faithfully. 
he could not explain the intimacy of his relations with Crave. They had begun at a club over cards. The two had little in common. Crave was a stockbroker when world wars did not happen to be in progress. But G.J. greatly liked him because, with all his crudity, he was such a decent, natural fellow, so kind-hearted, so fresh and unassuming. And Crave, on his part, had developed an admiration for G.J., which G.J. was quite at a loss to account for. The one clue to the origin of the mysterious attachment between them had been a naive phrase which he had once overheard Crave utter to a mutual acquaintance. Old G.J.'s so subtle, isn't he? G.J. said to himself, reconsidering the proposal. And why on earth not? And then aloud, soothingly to Crave, All right, all right. The Major brightened and said to Mulder, You'll come, of course. Oh, rather, answered Mulder, quite simply. And G.J. again to himself said, I am a simpleton. The Major's pleading and the spectacle of the two officers with their precarious hold on life humiliated G.J. as well as touched him. And, if only in order to avoid the momentary humiliation, he would have been well content to be able to roll back his existence and to have had a military training and to be with them in the sacred and proud uniform. Now listen here, said the Major, about the aforesaid pretty ladies. There they stood together in the corner, hiding several of Rop's eccentricities, ostensibly discussing art, charity, world politics, the strategy of war, the casualty list. Chapter 23. The Call Christine found the night at the guinea fowl rather dull. The supper-room, garish and tawdry in its decorations, was functioning as usual. The round tables and the square tables, the tables large and the tables small, were well occupied with mixed parties and couples. Each table had its own yellow illumination, and the upper portion of the room, with a certain empty space in the centre of it, was bafflingly shadowed. Between two high, straight, falling curtains could be seen a section of the ballroom, very bright against the curtains, with the figures of dancers whose bodies seemed to be glued to each other, pale to black or pale to khaki, passing slowly and rhythmically across. The ragtime music, over a sort of ground bass of syncopated tom-tom, surged through the curtains like a tide of the Sea of Aphrodite, and bathed everyone at the supper-tables in a mysterious, aphrodisiacal fluid. The waiters alone were insensible to its influence. They moved to and fro with the impassivity and disdain of eunuchs separated for ever from the world's temptations. Loud laughs or shrill little shrieks exploded at intervals from the sinister melancholy of the interior. On Christine's left, at a round table in a corner, sat G.J. On her right, the handsome boy Mulder. On Mulder's right, Miss Ada Alltown spread her amplitude, and on G.J.'s left was a young girl known to the company as Alice. Major Crave, the host, the splendid quality of whose hospitality was proved by the flowers, the fruit, the bottles, the cigar boxes and the cigarette boxes on the table, sat between Alice and Ida Alton. The three women, on principle, despised and scorned each other with false warm smiles and sudden outbursts of compliment. Christie knew that the other two detested her as being one of those French girls, who, under the protection of free trade, came to London, and, by their lack of scruple and decency, took the bread out of the mouths of the nice, modest, respectable English girls. She, on her side, disdained both of them, 
not merely because they were courtesans, which somehow Christine considered she really was not, but also for their characteristic insipidity, lackadaisicalness and ignorance of the technique of the profession. They expected to be paid for doing nothing. Ida Altown she knew by sight as belonging to a great rival promenade. Ida had reached the purgatory of obesity which Christine always feared. Despite the largeness of her mass, she was a very beautiful woman in the English manner, blonde, soft, idle, without a trace of temperament, and incomparably dull and stupid. But she was ageing. She had been favourably known in the West End continuously, save for a brief escapade in New York, for perhaps a quarter of a century. She was at the period when such as she realised with flaccid alarm that they have no future, and when they are ready to grist grave imprudences for youths who feel flattered by their extreme maturity. Christine gazed calmly at her, supercilious and secure in the immense advantage of at least fifteen years to the good. And if she shrugged her shoulders at Aida for being too old, Christine did the same at Alice for being too young. Alice was truly a girl, probably not more than seventeen. Her pert, pretty, infantile face was an outrage against the code. She was a mere amateur, with everything to learn, absurdly presuming upon the very quality which would vanish first. And she was a fool. She obviously had no sense, not even the beginnings of sense. She was wearing an impudently expensive frock, which must have cost quite five times as much as Christine's own, though the latter, in the opinion of the wearer, was by far the more authentically chic. And she talked proudly at large about her losses on the turf, and of the swindles practised upon her. Christine admitted that the girl could make plenty of money, and would continue to make money for a long, long time, barring accidents, but her final conclusion about Alice was, she will end on straw. The supper was over. The conversation had never been vivacious, and now it was half drowned in champagne. The girls had wanted to hear about the war, but the Major, who had arrived in a rather dogmatic mood, put an absolute ban on shop. Alice had then kept the talk, such as it was, upon her favourite topic, reviews. She was an encyclopaedia of knowledge concerning reviews, past, present and to come. She had once, indeed, figured for a few grand weeks in a review chorus, thereby acquiring unique status in her world. The topic palled upon both Ida and Christine, and Christine had said to herself, they are aware of nothing, these two, for Ida and Alice had proved to be equally and utterly ignorant of the superlative social event of the afternoon, the private view of the Reynolds galleries, at which indeed Christine had not assisted, but of which she had learnt all the intimate details from G.J. What, Christine demanded, could be done with such a pair of ninnies? She might have been excused for abandoning all attempts to behave as a woman of the world should at a supper party. Nevertheless, she continued good-naturedly and conscientiously in the performance of her duty to charm, to divert and to enliven. After all, the ladies were there to captivate the males, and if Ida and Alice dishonestly flouted obligations, Christine would not. She would, at any rate, show them how to behave. She especially attended to G.J., who, having drunk little, was taciturn and preoccupied in his amiabilities. She divined that something was the matter, but she could not divine that his thoughts were saddened by the recollection of the guinea-fowl of the lovely music which he had heard earlier in his drawing-room, and by the memory of the Major's letters, 
and of what the Major had said at the Rounds Galleries about the past and the possibilities of the future. The Major was very benevolently intoxicated, and at short intervals he raised his glass to G.J., who did not once fail to respond with an affectionate smile, which Christine had never before seen on G.J.'s face. Suddenly, Alice, who had been lounging semi-somnolent with an extinct cigarette in her jewelled fingers, sat up, and said in the uncertain voice of an inexperienced girl who has ceased to count the number of glasses emptied, "'Shall I recite? I've been trained, you know.' And not waiting for an answer, she stood and recited, with a surprisingly correct and sure pronunciation of difficult words, to show that she had, in fact, received some training. "'Helen, thy beauty is to me, like those Nicene barks of yore, the gently o'er a perfumed sea, the weary, wayworn wanderer bore to his own native shore. On desperate seas long wont to roam, thy hyacinth hair, thy classic face, thy naiad airs have brought me home to the glory that was Greece, to the grandeur that was Rome. Lo, in your brilliant window niche, how statue-like I see thee stand, the agate lamp within thy hand. Ah, Psyche from the regions which are holy land. The uncomprehended marvellous poem, having startled the whole room, ceased, and the ragtime resumed its sway. A drunken, bravo, came from one table, a cheer from another. Young Alice nodded an acknowledgement and sank loosely into her chair, exhausted by her last effort against the spell of champagne and liqueurs. And the naive, big major, bewitched by the child, subsided into soft contact with her and they almost tearfully embraced. A waiter sedately replaced a glass which Alice's drooping negligent hand had overturned and wiped the cloth. G.J. was silent. The whole table was silent. Is it de la grande poésie? asked Christine of G.J., who did not reply. Christine, though she condemned Alice as now disgusting, had been taken aback, and in spite of herself much impressed by the surprising display of elocution. Oui, said Mulder in his clipped, self-conscious Oxford French. Two couples from other tables were dancing in the middle of the room. Mulder demanded, leaning towards her, I say, do you dance? But certainly, said Christine, I learnt at the convent. And she spoke of her convent education, a triumphant subject with her, though she had actually spent less than a year in the convent. After a few moments they both rose, and Christine, bending over G.J., whispered lovingly in his ear, Dear, thou wilt not be jealous if I dance one term with thy young friend? She was addressing the wrong person. Already throughout the supper, Ida, ignoring the fact that the whole structure of civilised society is based on the rule that at a meal a man must talk first to the lady on his right, and then to the lady on his left, and so on infinitely, had secretly taken exception to the periodic intercourse, and particularly the intercourse in French, between Christine and Mulder, who was officially hers that these two should go off and dance together with the supreme insults to her. By ill chance, she had not sufficient physical command of herself. Christine felt that Mulder would have danced better two hours earlier, but still he danced beautifully. Their bodies fitted like two parts of a jigsaw puzzle that had discovered each other. She realised that G.J. was middle-aged, and regret tinctured the ecstasy of the dance. Then suddenly she heard a loud, imploring cry in her ear. Christine! 
She looked round, pale, still dancing, but only by inertia. Nobody was near her. The four people at the Major's table gave no sign of agitation or even of interest. The Major still had Alice, more or less, in his arms. "'What was that?' she asked wildly. "'What was what?' said Mulder, at a loss to understand her extraordinary demeanour. And she heard the cry again, and then again, "'Christine! Christine!' She recognised the voice. It was the voice of the officer whom she had taken to Victoria Station one Sunday night months and months ago. "'Excuse me,' she said, slipping from Mulder's hold, and she hurried out of the room to the ladies' cloakroom, got her wraps, and ran past the watchful guardian through the dark, dubious portico of the club into the street. The thing was done in a moment, and why she did it she could not tell. She knew simply that she must do it, and that she was under the dominion of those unseen powers in whom she had always believed.' She forgot the guinea-fowl as completely as though it had been a prenatal phenomenon with her. End of chapter 23